Hello, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, and I'd like to welcome you to the Infectious Diseases Society of America's Hepatitis C Knowledge Network podcast series. Today, we will be listening to Dr. David L. Wiles, MD, Associate Professor of Medicine, Division of Infectious Diseases, University of California, San Diego, discussing treatment experience patients and viral resistance. Hi, everybody. Um, My name is Dr. David Wiles. Um, I'm happy to be here on part of the IDSA and the Hepatitis C Knowledge Network um, webinar series to talk to you today about treatment experience patients and uh, viral resistance. Um, I think we're going to start off with a few introductory slides um, to set the stage. Andres? I don't believe he's on the line, but I can take over. Okay. Okay. Okay, so just to go over the disclaimer first, any diagnostic or therapeutic recommendations are of the presenter only. Um, We do not necessarily, they do not necessarily represent the views of IDSA. Webinar attendees must use their own independent independent professional judgment, making clinical decisions. The webinar attendees assumes all risk in using this information. Uh, The IDSA Hepatitis C Knowledge Network is in compliance with HIPAA. IDSA will bear no liability liability for the resulting use of the information provided during the webinar. Uh, Just to go over the introduction, uh, IDSA, the Hepatitis C Knowledge Network offers a monthly uh, hour-long webinar to educate IDSA members on current recommended practices and manage patients infected with the hepatitis C virus, uh, provides information on critical knowledge topics to effectively identify, treat, and manage HCV. Uh, this gives attendees an opportunity for HCV treaters to engage with HCV experts discussing issues related to complex patient care And webinar attendees are able to submit clinical HCV cases. Uh, And the Q&A slides, uh, Dr. Wiles will address any questions concerning the presentation and general clinical questions regarding treatment and management of of HCV patients after the presentation has ended. Uh, We will use the Q&A function for attendees to submit their questions. Uh, Please, um, yes, that is all. Um, Dr. Wiles, uh, if if you're ready, you can start the presentation now. Okay, thanks, Thomas. So um, again, today we're gonna talk about treatment experience patients and a little bit about viral resistance. I wanted to start off just um, looking a little more at the treatment experience patient and and what are some of the things to consider when calling somebody treatment experience. Before the advent of some of these more potent therapies, we spent a lot of time um, with treatment experience patients trying to gather data about what type of treatment regimen they had had previously. In other words, the type of interferon, were they treated with standard or pegylated interferon? Um, Most had received ribavirin. If so, what was the dose they had received? Um, Certainly since 2011 with the approval of telapavir and bocephir, now it's also important to know whether they were treated with a DAA, a direct acting antiviral. And again, in most cases, if patients are treatment experienced, it will have been with a protease inhibitor. 
And then how long were they tre treated in their original treatment um, regimen? It's also important to know the side effects or intolerances of the prior regimen, um, particularly was therapy truncated prematurely because of intolerance or side effects. And then obviously you'd want to know did they have any severe side effects that would preclude re-exposure um, to either interferon or ribavirin, as some of the retreatment options, at least at the current at the current time, will still rely on using interferon or ribavirin in these patients. And then finally, perhaps most importantly also, is what was their response to their prior treatment regimen? Were they a virologic relapser? Um, in that case, those patients actually really can be considered as treatment naive um, in terms of what the regimens are you would consider and how you implement those regimens. Otherwise, patients we kind of lump into non-responders, although you can subdivide those populations into partial or null responders. And the next slide, I'll take you through a little more detail of those definitions. I think the most important point, though, is um, as HCV therapies become more and more potent, many of these considerations of what their responses and what their prior therapy actually was will go away. And I'll show you some of that data as well. So these are the classic on-treatment responses for prior therapies in patients who have failed. Um, I'll start here at the top in a null responder. This is a patient who really had no viral load decrease during their prior therapy. And these are the toughest patients to retreat. Um, specifically, a null responder would be somebody who did not have at least a two-log reduction in their HCV RNA during prior interferon-based therapy by week 12. Um, you can also use an alternative definition that would be less than a one-log decrease during the first four weeks of therapy if somebody happened to stop very early. A partial responder is somebody who gets more than a two-log decrease in their HCV RNA but never goes to undetectable during prior therapy. And then a um, breakthrough or a relapse or a person who breakthroughs, as the name suggests, went to undetectable but then had the virus breakthrough while they were still taking therapy. Um, Noncompliance is certainly something you'd have to think about in breakthrough patients, particularly now with more potent therapies. Um, and then a relapser is somebody who remained suppressed while they were taking HCV therapy, but then the virus came back once you stopped uh, treating the patient. And those are the relapsers. And again, we really, for the sake of new treatment regimens, consider them uh, together with treatment-naive patients, which has already been presented in the um, network talks. So to lead us off, I'm going to talk about genotype 1 non-responders. What I'm showing you here in the blue table is what the actual label indication would be for the two new newly approved therapies, uh, sofosbuvir and semeprovir. As you can see, both of the DAAs are given as triple therapy with 12-week course of the DAA plus pegylated interferon and ribavirin. And then the amount of pegylated interferon and ribavirin you continue past that is variable. With sofosbuvir-based regimens, it's just 12 weeks of all three, and then you would stop. Um, with semeprovir-based regimens, um, you do 12 weeks of triple therapy, but the peg-ribavirin course is a total of 48 weeks, or stated another way, a 36 weeks of additional therapy with pegylated interferon and ribavirin. Um, and you see here in the asterisks that baseline screening for resistance polymorphism to semeprovir is recommended, the Q80K. And when we get to resistance, I'll come back and talk in more detail about the Q80K polymorphism. Below that, the table in green shows you what the um, ASLD, IDSA, um, ISUSA guidelines recommended for treatment in um, genotype 1 non-responder patients. Again, relapsers were grouped with treatment-naive patients. So for a non-responder population, um, we broke that down into interferon-eligible or ineligible patients. But as you can see here, as far as the guideline recommendations were, um, it didn't matter because we had the same recommendation, which would be sofosbuvir plus semeprovir. So the two DAAs together in an interferon-free regimen with or without ribavirin for a three-month course, 
12 weeks. Um, and as we'll talk about later, um, as more data is emerged with this regimen, which was also which was studied in the COSMOS study, so the so-called COSMOS regimen, um, most of the data would suggest that ribavirin is probably not necessary. Um, you can see then some alternative options, um, sofosfir plus pegylate interferon and ribavirin for 12 weeks, or semaphidur plus peg-ribavirin for 12 weeks of triple therapy with a total of 48 weeks of peg and riba. Again, essentially what are the label indications. And then another alternative, the patients cannot take interferon if they're interferon eligible. You could consider doing sofosfir plus ribavirin alone for 24 weeks. Inter just to say a word about interferon ineligible patients, um, this has gone into more detail in the actual doc guidelines document. But these are patients who either have autoimmune disease who could not receive interferon, um, decompensated cirrhotics, certainly you would not want to get interferon, give interferon to patients with severe comorbid conditions such as severe cardiac disease or psychiatric disease where interferon could potentially exacerbate those conditions, or patients who at baseline already have significant uh, cytopenias, significant thrombocytopenia, anemia, or leukopenia. Again, all of these being at least relative contraindications to interferon, so it would be considered interferon ineligible patients. And then last, you can see on the right, we, we actually recommended against using Swapivir, Bocephir, plus Pegriba, both because of the long treatment duration lower rates of efficacy, and increased side effects of those triple combination regimens. So now what I want to do is take you through a little bit of the data that lies behind some of the guideline recommendations and point out some of the limitations in the data um, for the recommendations. So the neutrino study was done with sofosfir plus pegribavirin. Importantly, this was a treatment-naive only study, so there were no prior non-responders included in the study, and that's important to know. The regimen was, again, 12 weeks of triple therapy with sofosfavir. 90% um, of the patients were genotype 1, although there were genotype 4, 5, and 6 patients included, and 17% had cirrhosis. Um, what you can see here is that overall, 90% of patients in the trial had an SVR12 or a cure, including 89% in the red bar of genotype 1 patients. On the, the right side of the figure, um, in the uh, kind of light blue color are cirrhotic patients where we had an 80% SVR rate, uh, among the highest we had seen thus far with cirrhotic patients treated, retreated, uh, treated. Um, and then other difficult to treat populations, so African Americans in orange, or patients with the IL-28BT allele, again, 87% uh, SVR rates. So um, this certainly looked good, but again, this is a treatment-naive population, so how um, was the label indication uh, arrived at for non-responder populations. Um, that is shown here. So the FDA actually did a, their own analysis of the neutrino data, data um, estimating that any proportion of a treatment-naive population is going to contain patients who would have been non-responders had you treated them with pegylated interferon and ribavirin, and they tried to estimate the SVR in that population. And what you can see here from the FDA analysis, they estimated that the SVR12 rate would be 78% in a prior treatment experience population. And then if you looked at uh, particularly tough to treat populations, so a population that had multiple negative predictors, including IL-28B non-CC genotypes, high baseline viral load, and bridging fibrosis or cirrhosis, so patients that had all those characteristics together, they still estimated the SVR rate to be 71%. And this analysis was um, what the label indication was based on for this experienced treatment population. What's our data with semeprevir in treatment experience patients? Well, there's only one phase three study, and that looked at only relapsers in terms of a treatment experience population. 
It looked at semeprevir for 12 weeks with pegylated interferon and rodvirin, then with an additional um, 12 to 36 weeks of pegylated interferon, depending on their early virologic response. So it used what we call RGT, or response-guided therapy. Um, what you can see, though, and, and this is reflected in the label, that we don't actually use response-guided therapy in clinical practice. And the main reason is that the majority of patients made the criteria to shorten therapy, so for the sake of simplification, um, RGT or response-guided therapy is not used in clinical practice. In this study of prior um, relapsers, 93% made the criteria to shorten therapy, and they had an 83% SVR, as you can see there on the right of the screen. Overall, in the PROMISE study, 79% of patients were cured or had an SVR12 with this treatment regimen. And you can see that's over a 40% increase from placebo plus pegloribavirin in this population. Um, uh, the other bars there show you that there is a difference between genotype 1A and 1B patients, um, with 1B patients doing better with this regimen than 1As, and we'll come back to that. A lot of this has to do with resistance characteristics in those two different genotype subtypes. And then cirrhotic patients did pretty well um, with about a 75% SVR rate with this regimen. Again, though, remember, this is a, a prior relapse population which really does not address a non-responder population. Um, one other thing to mention is this Q80K baseline polymorphism. In this study you can see here inside the red box that patients with genotype subtype 1A at baseline who also had a Q80K polymorphism did not respond as well to this therapy. Um, with You can see there the 19.8% increase in proportion of patients responding over placebo but with the 95% confidence intervals crossing the zero or what would be the placebo line there. Um, this impact was even more dramatic in a treatment-naive study done solely in the United States, the Quest 1 study, where in that study there was no significant difference um, from placebo in patients who had a baseline Q80K when you gave them semeprevir. And this was the basis for the FDA label, which indicates that baseline Q80K resistance testing should be done. And if a patient with genotype 1A has the Q80K, um, semeprevir plus pegylated interferon and ribavirin at least should probably not be used and you should consider alternative therapies. And um, there's no reason to think this doesn't hold true for a treatment experience population as well, although we don't have specific data in non-responders. The data we do have with semeprevir and prior non-responders comes from a phase two study called the ASPIRE study. This is uh, actually a multi-arm study um, that looked at a number of different things, including semeprevir doses of 100 or 150 milligrams, and looked at varying durations from 12 to 48 weeks of semeprevir administration, with everybody in the study getting 48 weeks of pegylated interferon and ribavirin. What I've done here in the graphics is to compile all the patients who got 150 milligrams in this study um, and consider them together regardless of whether they got 12 or 48 weeks of semeprevir. And so you can see overall, in relapsers, 84% of patients had an SVR24 and were cured. As you have patients who are less responsive to interferon, so partial or null responders, the overall response rate to semeprevir plus pegan ribavirin comes down. It goes from 84 to 76% in partial responders to 50% in prior null responders. And this is the exact same thing that had been seen in trials that added filaprevir or bosepravir to pegylated interferon and ribavirin. As the patient is more interferon resistant, um, you get lower responses when you add in just one DAA, at least one protease inhibitor. Below that graphic, you can see there I showed you the Q80K polymorphisms. Um, there was a numerically lower response rate of 61% SVR in all prior um, 
non-responder patients who had the QADK baseline versus a 66% SVR rate overall considering relapses, partials, and nulls together who did not have the QADK. Um, on the right of the graph then, in the right graph, I pulled out just the prior null responders, the toughest to treat in terms of their interferon sensitivity, and then broke it down further by their fibrosis stage as they entered the trial. So F0 to 2 is no to moderate fibrosis, and then F3 would be bridging fibrosis, F4 are cirrhotics, and again what you can see in a null responder population, as you have more fibrosis or go to cirrhosis, response rates diminish further. Um, all the way down to 30% response rate in a prior null responder who was also cirrhotic, who was retreated with semepivir plus pegylated interferon and ribavirin. Um, and again, a similar thing was seen with telapivir and bocepivir with even worse response rates, um, approaching 10 or 15% in those populations when they were retreated with telapivir. So um, the recommended regimen, the most efficacious regimen in this population that's available right now would be the so-called COSMOS regimen which looked at a nucleotide inhibitor, in this case sofosplevir, a uridine analog, plus a protease inhibitor, and in this case semeprevir. You can see the study here consisted of two cohorts of patients. Cohort 1 were all genotype 1 prior null responders, um, but with limited amounts of fibrosis on liver biopsy. They were F0 and F2. Cohort 2, which was enrolled uh, after cohort 1, consisted of genotype 1 naive or null responders, but the majority were null responders. And all of these patients in cohort 2 had significant liver fibrosis. They either had bridging fibrosis or cirrhosis, um, with about half, again, being cirrhotic. You can see here the COSMOS study looked at four different treatment regimens. All patients got sofosbuvir plus semeprevir. Two arms were given this for 24 weeks. Two arms used 12 weeks. And then um, one of each of the durations used ribavirin, the other did not. And you can see that there in the graphic. And the ribavirin dosing was weight-based dosing, so 1,000 or 1,200 milligrams. These are the response rates, which were just um, the final response rates were just presented a couple weeks ago at the European Liver Meeting by Mark Slokowski and Eric Klawitz. Um, so again, for cohort one, you can see here, um, these again are null responders, but with minimal fibrosis. Um, what you can see here are the SVR 24, 12 rates. Um, and the blue bars with the, the numbers on the graphic show you what is essentially an intention to treat analysis. So these are patients who actually came back for their SVR12 follow-up and had HCV RNA measured at that time point. The red portions of all these bars indicate patients who did not have a visit at the SVR12 time point. In intention to treat analysis, they're considered failures. Um, but if you look at a per-protocol analysis, obviously they would just be removed. And then the green portions of the bars are the patients who actually had documented virologic failure of the regimen. And so you can see, aside from the 24-week ribavirin arm, which is the first arm listed in cohort 1, where there's a lot of missing data at the SVR12 time point, in general the SVR rates are 93 to 96%, um, with a lot of the, the, missing, the failures being missing data. In cohort 2, um, you see a similar story. Remember, this is probably the toughest to treat population in the COSMOS study. So again, these are all patients with bridging fibrosis or cirrhosis, and the majority are also prior null responders. And you can see here, regardless of whether they got 24 or 12 weeks, and regardless of whether ribavirin was used or not, response rates are at least 93 to 100% in all these populations. Individual numbers in each arm were shown on the last slide, 
and range from about 30 to 15 patients. All told, there's about 170 patients in total across both cohorts that were looked at. And if you look at overall, the response rate is right around 95%, particularly if you throw out the patients who didn't have a follow-up at week 12. Um, the Q80K didn't seem to make a difference, and I'll show that in um, an upcoming slide. So here we'll talk more about the Q80K. Um, so what is the Q80K to start? So it's a polymorphism that's prevalent in patients with genotype 1A. Particularly, it's prevalent in North American genotype 1A sequences. So about 40 to 50% of patients with genotype 1A in North America actually have the Q80K polymorphism present. It's only about 20% in European genotype 1A patients. Um, in vitro, anyway, this causes about a 7 to 10-fold increase in the EC50 or a 7 to 10-fold decrease in, in semeprevir activity. It has modest impact on some of the other cyclic protease inhibitors, such as things like osinopravir or faldeprevir, although clinically it doesn't seem to impact those as much as semeprevir. As we mentioned previously, if you're going to use semeprevir plus pegline interferon and ribavirin, the label indication would be to do a baseline resistance test and consider other therapies if you do document the Q80K being present. Um, the impact of the Q80K, though, when you're talking about potent interferon-free therapies is unclear. Um, what I'm showing you here on the right are cohorts 1 2, and the response rates, the cure rates, based on whether the Q80K was present in red or whether it was wild-type Q80Q um, in blue. And you can see in cohort 1, there was about a 10% difference. 90% um, versus 100% um, in, in 27 and 30 patients respectively. However, in cohort 2, the more difficult to treat population, um, there was no difference seen between patients with or without the Q80K. Um, also, um, small numbers of patients here, so it's tough to know for sure, but it did not appear there were six relapses in total that accounted for all the failures. Four of six received ribavirin, actually, so there's not a clear indication that ribavirin made a difference um, in responding with the baseline Q80K. So now I'm going to switch gears for a second and just briefly talk about genotype 2 and 3 and what the current recommendations are for retreating patients who had previously failed, um, largely based on uh, three different, uh, two different studies. So the fusion study looked at treatment experienced genotype 2 3 patients and used sofosbuvir plus ribavirin um, for either 12 or 16 weeks. The majority of patients in this study were prior relapsers, and about a third were cirrhotic. What you can see overall response rates were 50% with 12 weeks of therapy, and that increased to 73% with 16 weeks of therapy. But as you'll notice, the large difference with increasing duration of therapy came in the patients with genotype 3. With only 12 weeks of therapy, only 30% of genotype 3 patients had an SVR12, and that increased and, and almost doubled when you extended by just four weeks to 16 weeks, you had 62% SVR rates. And then I broke it down further here. You can look at cirrhotic patients with genotype 2 and genotype 3. And again, in particular, you see genotype 3 patients who had cirrhosis, pretty dismal response rates with just 12 weeks, and a dramatic increase with just four weeks extension. So based on this, the valence study, which was conducted in Europe, was adjusted and looked at treatment durations varying based on the HCV genotype. So the patients with genotype 2, whether they were treatment naive or experienced, got 12 weeks of sofosbuvir plus ribavirin. Um, if they were genotype 3, again, regardless of treatment experience, they actually were extended to 24 weeks in the valence study, um, both groups getting weight-based ribavirin in combination with sofosbuvir. As you can see in the valence study, 
the majority of patients, about 60%, actually were treatment experienced and 20% were cirrhotic. So this is the breakdown. Overall, you can see 93% of genotype 2 and 85% of genotype 3 patients were cured with 12 and 24 weeks respectively in the valence study. What I really want to draw your attention to is you look across as we go here from treatment naive, treatment naive cirrhotics to experience to experience cirrhotics, you can see genotype 2 patients generally do well across the board with 12 weeks of therapy, and that's reflected in the label indication and in the guidelines. For genotype 3 patients, 24 weeks brings response rates up in most of the populations with the exception being the treatment experience cirrhotic population where um, there was not a lot of evidence that actually going from 16 to 24 weeks to improve responses in this uh, most difficult to treat genotype 3 population. So I think genotype 3 treatment experience cirrhotic patients is an area where we still need um, better therapeutic options. So these are the actual approved indications for genotype 2 patients who need to be retreated meaning they failed pegylated interferon and ribavirin therapy previously, so phosphor plus ribavirin for 12 weeks would be recommended, and genotype 3 it would be 24 weeks. The guidelines largely reflect this in that um, sofosbuvir plus ribavirin for 12 weeks is recommended in treatment experienced patients. There was a little bit of data in the fusion study that extending to 16 weeks might improve this a little bit. It was not shown in the valence study where they already had very high response rates with um, just 12 weeks. So there's still a bit of an unknown there, but probably 12 weeks is sufficient for most patients who are genotype 2 treatment experienced. Genotype 3 experienced patients, sofosbuvir plus ribavirin for 24 weeks. You'll see on the alternatives that sofosbuvir plus PEG and ribavirin is an option for 12 weeks in these experienced patients. And there is data to suggest, particularly in patients such as genotype 3 experienced cirrhotics, that you probably do get a slightly better response rate if you would do 12 weeks of sofosbuvir peg ribavirin. Response rates on the order of 80 to 85 uh, percent as compared to 60 percent in the data we have with just soft ribavirin. And it is a shorter treatment duration, but of course then you are introducing in interferon and all of its side effects. So that's a, a discussion to be had with patients um, and looking at their interferon eligibility. So can we predict who's going to respond to phosphor-based regimens? This is a study that was presented at the European Liver Meeting that combined data across um, genotype 1, 2, and 3 studies looking at the atomic, the neutrino, um, the uh, fission, fusion, and valence studies. So all these studies were combined. They looked at all the potential negative pretreatment predictors in the univariate analysis, found ones that looked to have some impact and then looked at um, how, as you piled up more and more of these negative predictors, how patients responded. Um, at the bottom of the slide, you can see the negative predictors that were considered. Was the patient treatment experienced? Um, were they male? Were they, did they have a high body weight greater than 75 kilograms? Did they have a bad IL-28B status? Were they cirrhotic? And did they have a high baseline viral load? And again, you can see, as you pile up these negative predictors, you really need to get to four or five negative predictors before you really start to see a drop off in sofosbuvir-based regimens. For genotype 1, this was sofosbuvir plus PEG and riba. For genotypes 2 and 3, this was sofosbuvir plus ribavirin, with 12 weeks for genotype 2s and 24 weeks for genotype 3s. So what are the future options? Just two slides about this um, for what's going to be coming probably in about six months. Um, we expect FDA approval of some of these regimens for treatment experience patients. So um, one option is sofosbuvir plus an NS5A antagonist called ladipasvir. 
Um, this is a fixed dose combination. You can see here the design of the ION2 study looked at sofosbuvir plus ledipasvir um, for either 12 or 24 weeks, and again looked at arms that had or did not have ribavirin. This was actually a very difficult to treat treatment experience population. Over 50% had failed prior protease inhibitor-based HCV therapy, and 44% you can see here were prior null responders. So again, kind of the toughest of the tough to retreat, including 20% cirrhotics. On the right, you can see the response rates. With 24 weeks, 99% cure rates. Um, with going down to 12 weeks, you do see a slight numerical drop-off. 94 to 96% cure rates, although they were not statistically significantly different than the 24-week arms. There was, however, if you looked at patients who were treated for 12 weeks who also had cirrhosis coming into the study, there the response rates dropped to 86 to 82%, and there was a significantly lower response rate in patients who were cirrhotic who were treated for 12 weeks compared to 24 weeks. Um, it's a small absolute difference, but it was statistically significant. I think whether that's clinically significant difference and it would warrant extending to 24 weeks is still an open question. Another thing to note, all the patients who did have virologic relapse were in the shorter duration arms in the 12-week arms. The other option here I'm going to present is a, a different approach. It's using a ritonavir-boosted protease inhibitor, ABT450, plus an NS5A antagonist, plus a non-nucleoside inhibitor with ribavirin. And this study, the Turquoise 2 study, looked at 12 or 24 weeks. Um, what I'll show you here is just, you can see here the overall response rates, um, the majority were treatment experience, and again, this is an exclusively cirrhotic study. Um, and I'll just draw your attention, you can read all the response rates, but to the far right side of the graph, where we're just looking at genotype 1A prior null responders who were cirrhotic. And there you do see a significant difference between 12 and 24 weeks of therapy, with the 12-week arm doing significantly um, worse than the 24-week arm with an 80% overall response rate compared to 93%. Although, again, by the time you parse it down this far, you have relatively small treatment numbers and there is a lot of overlap. So to finish off, in the last couple of slides, I'm just going to talk about HCV resistance. Um, resistance concepts, I think, are probably pretty familiar to this group. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about these concepts. You can read them. Um, but we do expect all direct-acting antivirals to have the potential to select for resistance. And I'll just mention resistant variant is the word you'll hear a lot. This is meant to reflect the fact that we think these are pre-existing and selected as opposed to an induced mutation. So hepatitis C is often compared to HIV or hepatitis B in terms of its resistance characteristics. Um, and I won't read each of these again to, so we have some time to get to questions, but I think the moral of the story is that hepatitis C has a faster viral turnover rate than HIV or hepatitis B and is a more error-prone virus. So it has a higher potential to develop resistance in the short term. But the huge difference I think that we're becoming to really realize is that there's no way for HCV to archive or have these resistance mutations persist. So they, we don't expect them to persist, and I'll actually show you data that they actually do um, go back to wild type after time off therapy, and we don't think there are the same implications as there are with HIV or HPV, where the virus essentially remembers what it's been exposed to, and you get rapid reemergence of resistance if you re-expose to the same medication or medication with a cross-resistance. Just to look at the classes, um, and I'm just going to focus on the right side of the screen where I try to give you what the resistance barrier is for these different compounds. Um, I'll highlight just two things. Protease inhibitors and NS5A inhibitors have relatively low barriers to resistance, um, and they do have a differential resistance barrier in 1As versus 1Bs. 
And then at the other end of the spectrum are nucleotide inhibitors, which have an extremely high barrier to resistance um, and are really unique among our novel HCV classes in terms of their resistance barrier. The other thing to pay attention to is the baseline resistant variants, um, particularly NS5A inhibitors. This is where I think there is going to be one of the remaining questions. About 15 to 20 percent of patients do have evidence of baseline resistance um, prior to starting therapy, and just how that impacts, impacts interferon-free therapies we don't quite know yet. So this kind of summarizes what I think we know about resistance. For pegylated interferon plus ribavirin with protease inhibitors, um, baseline variants generally do not matter, the exception being the Q80K, which we've already mentioned with semeprevir, or a poor interferon responder who happens to have a high fold change variant. The issue with that is that happens maybe in 1% of patients, and so it doesn't warrant baseline resistance testing. So the only place for baseline resistance testing really is with semeprevir and the Q80K if you're going to use that with PEG and ribavirin. More importantly, what I've alluded to, the viral quasi-species returns to a baseline state. Um, then the rest of this really deals with the fact that nucleotide inhibitors are really unique. Um, we don't see baseline resistance, um, and that if you fail with the regimen, you generally don't have resistance to nucleotide inhibitors, which is a departure from protease or NS5A antagonists. This is just what resistance testing looks like. It is clinically available. This is an example of a patient who would be wild type who doesn't have the Q80K. Transition that with somebody who does have the Q80K where you get this report that comes out that says they're resistant to semeprevir. So here's the data on decay of resistant variants. What you can see here, this is your patients with telaprevir. Um, over the course of about a year and a half, by population sequencing, 96% of patients have returned to a wild type state. Um, that's different based on 1A versus 1B due to the fitness of the variants. And then you see a similar story. This is data with semeprevir where, again, um, a, a similar time frame, um, certainly within a year, a year and a half, it looks like most patients have returned to a wild-type state, at least by population sequencing, um, with reversion, um, again, to wild-type in the majority of patients. So what about sophosphorus resistance? The resistance mutation is an S282T. It's an unfit mutant, replicates about 2% of wild-type, and you don't find it at baseline, even if you do ultra-deep pyro sequencing down to a level of 1%, it has not been documented in the base, in, to exist in baseline um, quasi-species. So um, an extensive search for resistance in patients who fail have been, has been done in the Phase three studies, and essentially no resistance was found, even on deep sequencing, in any of the Phase three studies conducted. Um, these were Phase three studies, the neutrino, the fission, and the fusion. Additionally, no resistance was seen in the, the few failures in the ion studies that were sophosphorus plus liposphere. There was one genotype 1 patient in Lone Star who had an S282T and one patient in the so-called SPARE study done by the NIH that had an S282T on failure. Um, importantly, you can see here that phenotypically post-treatment responses that look wild-type phenotypically remain sensitive at a wild-type level to sophosphorus. So what are the coming questions? I think one of the main issues is, does baseline NS5A resistance matter? SVR rates are numerically lower. If you look in the ION study that I presented, patients who had baseline NS5A resistant variants had an 89% SVR12 rate as opposed to 90 to 94% in the overall study. Um, we don't know about PI-based regimens yet, but I would imagine a similar type thing. Still very good response rates, but numerically slightly lower. And then again, in the ION studies anyway, if you look at the patients who relapsed after therapy, they seem to be enriched. In other words, 15% roughly had ba of baseline samples had, of patients had NS5A resistance. In the relapsers, 
50% had baseline um, resistant variants. So they were enriched, although again, it was not statistically significantly different. And then one of the other questions is, can prior PI failures be treated with a PI-containing interferon-free regimen? And will resistance testing be useful? We just don't know yet. So this is my last slide. This is patient that's been, uh, a lot has been made of. Um, and it, you know, I think, does this suggest that we don't care about resistance in HCV? This is a patient treated with sofosbuvir plus lodiposphere for eight weeks in the Lone Star study. This is the patient I alluded to who relapsed. And when they relapsed, they had resistant virus to both sofosbuvir and lodiposphere at high percentages. Despite that, they turned around and retreated the patient a few weeks later with sofosbuvir plus lodiposphere, the same regimen, adding in ribavirin and just extending to 24 weeks. And you can see at the time they started retreatment, they still had evidence of resistance to both components of the regimen. Despite that, you can see here the patient quickly resuppressed and actually was cured. This is one patient. We need more data, but maybe suggesting we really are not going to care about resistance much as we have very potent therapies, particularly nucleotide-based therapies. And with that, I think I'm going to stop and we can open it up to questions about the presentation first and then general questions. Thank you, Dr. Wiles, for that wonderful presentation. Um, all attendees are, can submit questions via the question function in your control panel. And while you are compiling your questions, um, the next webinar will be presented by Dr. Kristen Marks of Cornell Medical College. Uh, she will be presenting on the treatment of HIV, HCV co-infected patients. Dr. Wiles, we had our first question come in. Mm -hmm. Do you see that? Okay. Yes, I do. I've got it here. So I'll just read it in case. I don't know if everybody can see it. So it says, would it be possible to comment on the drug interaction potential of some of the newer anti-HCV regimens? Um, sure. And I assume um, specifically um, the question is really talking about drug interactions with HIV medications, given that this is an ID-focused group. Um, first, I'll state again, I think Kristen will probably cover a lot of this in her talk, uh, in the next talk in the Knowledge Network. But um, sofosbuvir being a nucleotide is um, not metabolized by the cytochrome P450 system. Um, and so really looks very favorable in terms of drug interactions and is really um, almost devoid of interactions. It is a substrate for P-glycoprotein. So medications which are potent P-glycoprotein inducers do have the potential to lower sofosbuvir levels specifically things like rifampin, carbamazepine, and tipranavir of HIV protease inhibitors can induce PGP and could theoretically reduce levels of sofosbuvir. So those are not recommended to be co-administered. Um, some of the other new DAAs, so semeprevir in terms of what's approved right now, is a cytochrome P453A4 substrate. It is also, also a substrate for some um, uh, drug pumps as well as PGP. Um, so it can generally be a victim of other CYP inducing or inhibiting drugs. Um, if we talk about HIV medications, efavirenz, which is a potent CYP3A4 inducer, does reduce semeprevir exposure significantly. 
about 70%, so it's not recommended they be co-administered. On the flip side, ritonavir-boosted protease inhibitors, it's been studied with darunavir, um, increase um, semeprovir levels several fold um, to the point that it's not recommended that semeprovir also um, should not be administered with ritonavir-boosted protease inhibitors. So in the co-infection studies that have been done, and again, Kristen will talk about this, it's really been limited to raltegravir, um, ralpivirine, or things like maraviroc or T20, in fact, were the antiretrovirals allowed in the study. So um, somewhat limited uh, in that respect. The last thing I'll say about semeprovir is that um, I didn't mention this, but if we're talking about retreatment, patients who have advanced stages of liver disease, so cirrhosis with child's pub or C, um, hepatic dysfunction or cirrhosis. Um, certainly you need to use caution at the very least if you're going to co-administer semeprovir. Semeprovir accumulates in patients with more advanced liver disease and there are dose or exposure related toxicities to semeprovir. The main ones are photosensitivity and rash, but there also is possibility for some transaminitis or increased bilirubins due to um, transporter blockage. Um, and so again, those should really be administered with caution in patients with child's pure B or C um, cirrhosis. Oh, we've got another one here. Let's see. So um, the next question is, what is the long-term virologic suppression data with the newer anti-HCV regimens? Um, so just by the virtue of them being relatively new, we don't have as much data. There's clearly data that says SVR24 is essentially identical to SVR12 with the newer regimens. Um, in most of these regimens, if you see patients who fail, most relapses occur actually in the first four weeks, um, but certainly it looks like 99.9% .9 of relapses occur in the first 12 weeks. Um, SVR24 SVR data seems very durable. Um, going beyond that, you know, extrapolating to five or ten years down the road. Um, we have good data with this with pegylated interferon and ribavirin that durable responses are essentially the same and that anybody who um, you think may have a relapse, generally when it's looked they've been reinfected and haven't relapsed um, past SVR24. Um, we'll be accumulating obviously this data. There are a number of registry studies to make sure it looks the same in interferon-free regimens, but I don't really have any, ex any reason to expect that there's going to be a higher risk of relapse late with these interferon-free regimens. Uh, let's see. So uh, kind of more of a patient uh, question now. So the question is, what would be your recommendation for stage 4 cirrhosis, portal hypertension, and gastric varices, and LFTs in the hundreds? Can we use semeprovir and soft and ribavirin, or should we avoid semeprovir and do 24 weeks of soft plus ribo? Well, um, the first thing I'll say is you should make sure that patient, um, if not already, is, has been seen by a hepatologist and has been evaluated for the possibility of liver transplantation um, before you start therapy. But just as we mentioned, um, in this patient, once they have portal hypertension, they have varices, I'm going to assume, and I think you said they're, uh, I'm going to assume they're at least child's B, if not C. Um, you really can run into some trouble using semeprovir with accumulation and getting some transaminitis and, and tolerability issues. That said, um, I do know um, a lot of transplant hepatologists are using um, the COSMOS regimen in these types of patients and watching them carefully. Now again, 
This is generally transplant hepatologists doing this in patients who have already been evaluated for transplant. Um, and I think that's the, the caveat. Um, so there is data, though, um, on using 24 weeks of sofosbuvir plus ribavirin. Not so much specifically, although there was some data presented at the European Liver Meeting by uh, Nid Aftal in patients with portal hypertension using um, these types of regimens, and they actually seem to respond nicely. And you actually see decreases in portal pressure and, de and improvements in albumin and things relatively rapidly. Um, but the other data I want to mention is the, the peritransplant data. So there was a pre-transplant study done in patients all awaiting transplantation who also had a pedicellar carcinoma that looked at up to 48 weeks, actually, of sofosbuvir plus ribavirin. And there the response rates or cure rates were on the range of 70 to 75 percent, um, with the critical factor in the pre-transplant setting being the, the amount of time the patients had been undetectable before they went to transplant. In that study, once they went to transplant, they stopped the treatment regimen. And if they had been undetectable for at least four weeks before they went to transplant, all those patients were cured. There is also post-transplant data, which again looks very good with treatment with sofosbuvir and ribavirin with response rates in the range of 70 to 75 percent with just soft and riba. But it is probably lower than using sofosbuvir plus um, semeprovir. So for the Infectious Diseases Society of America, I am Dr. Neil Skolnick, and I hope you have continued to find the Hepatitis C Knowledge Network webinar podcast series useful and continue to check back for further topics.